and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose, with purpose, on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Najarin with On Purpose Magazine, and we're here today with Juliet Wright. How are you doing, Juliet? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. But it's, I'm so glad to have you on. You know, we've been friends for a long time, known each other for, oh, my gosh, I can't even, you remember how many years? Must I, be, like 15, 16, and you were at right? my wedding, so. And you were, yeah. I, you were with Val for two years before you got married, right? No. Right. So we've known each other at least 15. God. How can that be possible? I, know. I look in the mirror and I think, oh, that, <laughs> that's how it's possible. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Of course, we met when you were 15 years old, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was just a teenager. Right. No, that's one thing about age is that I, I think the experience, you know, age has brought me has, you know, it, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it makes you wiser. And I've, you know, I've earned it. The age, you know what I mean? I've earned where I'm at. I've earned the gray hairs, and it's it's benefited me. So I don't think I would want to go back to being like 12. Would you? Uh, you know, if I had the information I had now, maybe. Then you'd you know? be like a child genius or something. Oh, yeah, cause I'd know <laughs> how to deal with the stock market. I'd know when to say yay and nay, and I'd make some money, and I'd, I'd probably be able to deal with and what we're going to be talking about today, and that is uh, and some of the things we're going to be talking about today, and that is people who uh, now when people talk to me, it rolls off my back. When I was younger, it every bad word or, or perceived bad word stabbed me like a knife. So, um, and we're going to let me just uh, start with Juliet Wright is an author, a brand new author. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, for people that don't know Juliet, you're going to pretty soon here. Uh, she just wrote the book, Everything is My Fault, One Woman's Journey Through Codependency. Juli- I've known Juliet for years as a singer, a songwriter, recording artist, uh, and a teacher. I know you were born and raised in central Vermont and spent a lot of your young life and as, as an equestrian. I didn't even know that part. Um, and you've always been active in music and theater. Uh, you attended Interlochen Arts Academy from 79 to 1982, where you studied piano, music composition, theater, and dance, and graduated from the University of Miami and Coral Gables, Florida. And then you moved to Burlington, Vermont, and pursued a career in jazz. You could probably, instead of reading this, let, why don't you kind of follow from there about your your life in music and composition and teaching, and kind of give us a little um, little more flavor of that. Well, I, you know, when I was in, I had kind of gone, after graduating from Miami, I had kind of gone to uh, Burlington, kind of be, to hopefully be a big fish in a small pond in the jazz world, because I was a jazz guitarist at the time, and, um, you know, still am, but it's kind of taken a side, you know, it's on the sidelines compared to everything I'm doing out right now, but plus the man I was dating at the time was in Burlington, so I had kind of just, I hadn't really thought past that when I graduated, you know, I, but um, I spent almost a year there, and I was having dinner with my father one night and my mother, and I just made a joke about moving to Los Angeles, and, you know, before I knew it, he was like, well, you should do that, and I'll help you, and, you know, like a month later, there I was looking for a place in Los Angeles, and I spent 
probably about 13 years in Los Angeles, you know, playing clubs, playing top 40 and top 40 bands and playing in weddings and parties and, you know, clubs and just trying to make a living playing music and, you know, was had to get side jobs. You know, I mean, that whole business is just such a racket. You know, are you one of the uh, people I... I first met uh, you and your boyfriend at the time were, um, or husband at the time, excuse me, were, you know, playing music scene. You, you were in the music scene in Hollywood, and you were living in the Hollywood Hills. I mean, I mean, just very cliche, right? Right. Exactly. And it's so, but, you know, Hollywood's a deceptive place, and they, you know, they you go there all, you know, jazzed up, as it were, about the glitter and the glamour and, oh, I'm going to do this and that, and it's just, so different and it's really competitive and it's a really can be a really cold hard place to to be and with the expense of being there you know i mean everybody's there so it's expensive to live there and i ended up getting all these side jobs you know trying to support my music habit and you know to you know take voice lessons and all this other stuff and Anyway, I got to the point where it's like, you know, I I woke up 13 years later and I'm like, you know, I just want one job. I want one place to go every day. That's it, you know, and, you know, top 40 doesn't really get you anywhere creatively. And I was, you know, and I had tried to do the coffee houses and, um, you know, get, we had an album out and we tried to promote it and we tried to do all that and play Hollywood Boulevard and blah, 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 but it's such a hard thing to do. And um, so... Someone said to me, I mean, I had recently just gotten married, and they said, well, you know, why don't you just try teaching? And before I knew it, I was teaching and getting my credential and getting a master's degree. And I, I mean, if you ever, I thought I would be the last person on the planet to ever work with kids. I mean, I'm not a mother. I never had children or anything else. But I don't know, t- teaching and I just hit it off, and it was just fun, and it was still music, and it, it's probably one of the most difficult jobs I've ever done in my whole life, but it can also be very rewarding, and it's a steady paycheck, and, um, you know, you get to watch the children grow as musicians and you give them some light in their life in between math and reading and test scores. You know, you give them a, a break. You give them something to want to come to school for, and um got my master's and got my credentials, and... Um, I remember when you got your master's, it was so funny because, um, first of all, you know, it's cool that you're teaching kids and uh, that you really enjoy it because I know it's a passion because you've done it for a while and you seem to like doing it. And now I hear, understand you're learning the violin, which is a ridiculously hard instrument to learn uh, so that you can teach that also. But I remember that you, um, when you got your master's, because you spent you put so much time and work into it, obviously, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And I remember talking to you and you're saying, yeah, so I can make maybe an extra 100, 300 bucks a year, some ridiculous amount in the school system. I was like, really? That's it? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like maybe $25 a month more that you make. They don't really make it worth their while. And it's not in California. It's not required to have a master's in Massachusetts where I'm teaching now. It is required to have a master's, but, um, but I'm glad I did it, you know. I'm I'm really glad, and I wasn't going to do it, but a, a colleague of mine said, you know, if you can stand it, go right ahead and get your master's now that you're done with your credential because you'll never regret it. And I listened to her, and I'm really glad I did because it's required out here. So, And it's huge, but, I, you know, writing writing a thesis was so completely different than writing this book. I mean, you know, it's just so 
looking back on the thesis, it just seems so mechanical and, you know, you put this here, you put that there, you write this. And, I mean, it was difficult, you know, and you did research and everything else. Mm-hmm. But there's just so many other variables in, in putting out a book like I did. You know, I've really learned a lot about that, you know. But right, and you've written, uh, you, you write music, uh, so you've written a lot of lyric. Uh, you've written this book now, and you've written a thesis. I mean, I'm thinking these are three different types of writing styles, totally. Totally different. Totally different. And, you know, I, mean, I feel like my lyrics, you know, I own those. My thesis, you know, pe- probably people only look at it if they're looking at it for a model. You know, they go to Cal State L.A. and saying, oh, here's one I can look up as a model. But um, <laughs> but this book, you know, I'm really – and my music, I'm putting myself out there too, but I, I don't know how to describe it, but somehow you're a little bit more protected, like, well, this is my song, this is what I think. But when you put out a book, it's – it just seems like it's a little bit different somehow. Well, but one of the things I would imagine, and, and I don't know this, and, and talking about your book, Everything is My Fault, One Woman's Journey Through Codependency, because I want, I want to get into that. But I'd imagine if you're writing lyrics, you can, you, you can really put your feelings out in lyrics, but hide the details. So it's very safe. That's exactly right. That safe is a really good word. And, you know, I can hide things in metaphor and, you know, bring in, like, you know, one song I talked about, Thor and, you know, Midgard and all these other little, uh, all these different characters and stuff But where I'm saying what I want to say, but it's not just so blatant, you know. About I mean, who you're possibly, talking about or what specific thing you're talking about, right? You know, yeah, exactly. So, so let's get into your book a little bit because, um, first of all, um, Knowing you was not the reason I wanted to do the interview. I was captured by the title, Everything is My Fault. Um, I knew you during a lot of this time. I Not as well as my wife, uh, of course, because you knew my wife beforehand. That's how I met you. Um, but I know after reading after reading this book, and she read the whole thing, I've actually read uh, major parts of it, that you just really don't know what a person is going through. I mean, we had, I don't think we had any ideas of a lot of the struggles. We heard this a story here and a story there, and so it was all, um, it, it was familiar. But the feelings, the underlying feelings and the crap that, you, that you're going through, I think a lot of us really don't show that, right? Yeah, are you, I mean, I maybe I'm not as open, as much of an open book, or maybe none of us are as much of an open book as we think we are. You know, you may think, well, people... I mean, if I walk around with a feeling, obviously it's so apparent to me and can be so all-consuming, but someone on the outside, you know, may not have any idea of the angst that would be going on in my stomach. Maybe it's not as obvious to them, you know what I mean? Well, Unless I'm just running down the street like a part of the whole codependency thing where if you're not letting people know how you feel, you tend to be the the pleaser, and even if you're hurting inside, you, you come across as... I'm trying to please you so I don't have time for my own crap. That's exactly right. It's like if you, you know, if someone is codependent, like one of the things they can do is um, they feel other people's feelings or they feel like they're less important than the other person. So they're going to try and um, hide their feelings or feel, they're going to try and make it seem like they feel however the other person wants them to feel so that they, you know, can get what they need. Like for me and my father, it was like when he was in a rage attack, I would, 
you know, I would want to avoid that. So I tried to please him. I tried to feel like he wanted me to feel, act like he wanted me to act. I mean, be, you know, try to do everything perfect to avoid whatever, you know, hell that that would bring up. Right. You know, or the same thing with my mother. You know, if it, I thought if I was the perfect kid that she wouldn't drink because everything's my fault. Her drinking is my fault. Obviously, if I was a good kid, she wouldn't drink. And that doesn't work. But in some ways, when we when we acquire these we acquire these behaviors as children for a reason and it's usually because at some point it serves us to be that way and it's a form of self-protection but the problem is you grow up and you go into different relationships and different settings and you realize that those behaviors that protected you are only hurting you now you know but i mean i got to the point with my family where i didn't know what i wanted and then when i got into a real relationship with a man where do you want to go to dinner I wouldn't even know. How are you feeling right now? I wouldn't even know, and I'm so out of touch with myself that I ended up being a yes person with them. And, I mean, that gets to be a problem in a relationship, you know, well, when there's not... Think, getting... do, you have, um, do you have, like, a scientific kind of breakdown? What is codependency? If you had, if you had to explain to somebody who had no clue? Um, a lot of people... You know, codependency is a really um, difficult... difficult. Well, some people refer to it as a disease. I re- referred to it as a disease um but it's it's difficult to define and one of the um the leading authors on codependency her name is melody Beatty, and she's written books um including codependent no more the new codependency the language of letting go the codependent's guide to the 12 steps and she took in her first book codependent no more she takes 11 pages to define this disease um, wow. And she came up with one, and I'm quoting here, one a one sentence, a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and is who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. So in Juliet language, that means, you know, it can be referred to as relationship addiction where, you know, if someone's an alcoholic, the alcohol controls the person. In codependency, mm-hmm. the, a relationship controls a person. You're letting the relationship or that other person and that other person's well-being become more important than you are as a person. So, you know, we often um, equate codependency with uh, alcoholism, but you're, you're kind of saying or, or, or it can be said maybe that um, if you're codependent in one relationship, you're probably codependent in many different relationships. It doesn't have anything to do with alcohol or drugs necessarily, right? That's right. That's right. The other person becomes your god. Not everyone that's codependent came from a relationship where addictions existed. A lot of them did, but it's, you know, the caretaking that goes on and the controlling can be triggered by any number of things. I mean, I remember one CODA member had said that her her codependency started when her younger sister died at a young age, and so she, you know, kind of felt like, not good enough to die but I'm not good enough to live and she grew up feeling very codependent because she she felt so inadequate and she had made that relationship so important and she wasn't good enough to fulfill it and it's it comes in with different you know you know you could be codependent with someone who has a food addiction for example or anybody even if it doesn't have to do with addiction it's if you have um, that kind of personality you know, where you get into a relationship with somebody, the relationship becomes more important to you than you are as a person. 
that's right. codependency. You don't really hit me about your title, Everything is My Fault, because, you know, I went through a lot of self-loathing when I was younger. Um, how I see it now that I've become a, a little more healthy through the years is that, you know, the, the more scenes that, and I, and I use this, I'm going to use this term loosely, um, and that is the more, say, and more enlightened you become, uh, the more you are mature, let's say mature, you tend to, when something happens to you, you tend to see yourself as, as the common denominator in your own life, and um, instead of pointing out all the different reasons why, you, why life happened to you, you take responsibility for your action in it. Uh, but more people than not tend to want to point fingers at all the reasons why life has screwed them over and really don't like to take they don't like to take the responsibility for their own actions and, and their own lives a lot of times. So when they're pointing fingers, the codependent person uh, tends to be the person not, you know, a lot of us get our finger, you know, pe people are blaming all the time, but the codependent seems to be the one that believes everything that's told to them. And so that about whole thing about everything is my fault, I'm guessing, my guess would be that a lot of times when no matter what is said, we, a, code, a codependent person would tend to take it very personal. Yes. That's a lot said. I, I apologize. <laughs> no, that's, no, you're right, though. And I, it's, they, you know, when I was young, I was pretty much the scapegoat for my family. And, you know, that's what I learned. If I did good things, I got love. If I was good, I got love. If I was skinny, I got love. If I won on, in the horse show ring or got A's, I got love but if I didn't get that then that love was taken away and so I, I learned I learned to grow up that thinking that it was my fault and that if I right. was a good kid that it that these things wouldn't happen but I think where a lot of people get stuck in codependency is in a 12-step well I guess I'll just keep it in a codependency that they don't grow out of that blame stage, the anger, blame, resentment stage. You know, my parents were jerks, and that's why I grew up like I did, and I'm just going to spend my whole life hating them and blaming them, which is what's cool about the 12-step program is that you work, you own your stuff. Right. You know, I mean, I've got to stop blaming mom and dad. Mom and dad are gone. And as bad as they were, what does that have to do with what I choose to do? Right, exactly. So I can learn from those experiences and you know that's one thing about doing an inventory because this book was in, was my fearless moral inventory when you do when you go through the steps um, you know just like you're taking stock you know if you're like a store owner and you take stock on what you have on the shelves and what you need to order you know when you're doing an inventory you take a look at your positive and negative behaviors and belief systems as they've manifested yourself in your life not to judge it as bad or good, but just to look at it and see where am I at, what are my behaviors like, and what's going on with me. And you um, you can do these relate these inventories in many different ways, but you do it just to get your your crap, as it were, out on paper and see. Okay, this is these are things that I tended to do. This is what happened. This is where I came from. This is what happened. This is how I came to Coda, and this is what my life is like now. That's what you do when you do an inventory the purpose of the fourth step is to look at where you've been, where you're at, where you're going, and what happened. But, um, you know, just going back to your comment about people 
you know, not wanting to own their own stuff. It, this is exactly the purpose of this program is, yes, this happened to me. You know, yes, this happened in my childhood. But this is what, this is why I became like I am. These are why, I, this is why I have these deep, we call them defects of character, but pat, personality traits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you go, after you do the inventory, you go through what you need to go through to say, well, does this work for me? No. How can I get rid of it? Um, I guess I'll stop there. No, no that's all right. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, um, because there's we, there's so much to talk about in that realm, it, it's it's crazy, but I wanted to ask you, you as, I mean, you're a writer, so I, I'm guessing that's part of the point, but why did you decide to write this particular book? Was this a cathartic thing for you, or was this... Uh, part, uh, is this uh, your want to help others, or is it kind of both, or how did how did it, how did you writing this book get born? Well, originally, um, this was my second fearless moral inventory. It was my second t- a trip through the twelve steps because I, in twelve step programs, you just keep repeating the steps, and they call it peeling the onion, or you right. just keep peeling off layers of yourself and learning more about yourself and you get deeper and deeper into the real you and you know gradually learn to shed your old behaviors and you know kind of reinvent yourself as it were and this was my inventory and um i just just decided to put it out there a friend of mine suggested it actually and she said you know this would be really cool for you because you're you are codependent and that's the angle that you could take and you know, when you're writing the book, is you know, it, you're not a psychologist, but you know, I'm, I lived my whole life with this disease, and you know, you could talk about, you know, some of the things you've done to help you recover, and talk about your significant relationships, and there's probably people out there that could um, relate to that. So I just wrote it as my inventory. It's a a uh, relationships and defects of character inventory and I just decided to add a section of 12 step work to it and my um and the things I do to help me heal. I mean it was a long it's been a long process. I've been working on it you know little by little for probably 5 years now and it was a huge right. monster before it I narrowed it down. So, so and does I Does it get easier because uh, I'm guessing it's it's a it's a lifelong journey. What this disease Definitely. No, no, um, dealing with, you know, going through the uh, the inventory, because you, you kind of alluded to the fact that the first ones were really tough. It is because you're looking at yourself, and, you know, when you write the inventory, you write it in step four and step five is you have to admit it to God and yourself and another person. And it's really scary to have to read this to another person. And, um, you know, that's why when you... When in CODA or in any 12-step program, you get a sponsor, and that's just someone who's been in program for a long time that can help you through it. And you realize after you read it to your sponsor that, you know, she's probably heard the same things or done the same things, and, you know, she's not judging you mm-hmm. at all. Um, I guess, and I when I wrote the book, I tried to think of it as an endless CODA meeting. I'm going to get up there and tell my story and tell what works for me and that's it. But I guess the difference is when you do it in a CODA meeting, you're an anonymous person. No one knows your last name. No one knows who you are. And in this, I put my name on it. 
Right. And it wasn't until I got it out there I thought, wow, I'm really putting myself out there. But you know what? It's the truth. It's who I am. I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but it's just one person's journey, and it's what has worked for me. So, well, Let me ask you, because um, I had a... I have put out certain things in my life by doing interviews with certain people. And um, a few years ago, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about a lot of things that happened in my life. Now I can pretty freely. Um, but I, what I was surprised at is how many people really don't judge. I mean, because I, I think we've put so much on ourselves about what people are going to think and what people are going to say. And to be honest with you, I, at least in my life and what's happened i haven't had it, uh, the backlash i thought i would and in and so i was very happy that that occurred and it's very much easier for me to speak about it because i realized that you know there it nothing's going to happen really mhm no i can so relate to that i mean it's pretty, your book is pretty new but yeah but i think people are pretty wrapped up in their own lives don't you i mean they're really yeah they don't you know, and it's, I mean, the book is about me and anybody that knows me that reads it, I say, you know, this is, this is, you just should know it reading it, this is about me. And if you read it, you really do see that. I mean, I, because I'm relating everything back to my behaviors and my experience and how I handled things and how I would do it different or what this, you know, whatever defect it is that I'm working on, how it didn't work for me there and I've got to get rid of that behavior. You know, but it definitely is, comes back to ownership. I own whatever it is that, you know, whatever it is I'm talking about in the book. I own it as mine. I don't blame people, you know. I started getting into the book, and some, you go through some darkness. You, you talk about things. You go through things. And one of the things that's really appreciated in the book is at the end of the book, there's a lot of resources, a lot of help there. So people are going to get some takeaways from the book can you give me like a few of the top takeaways people are going to get from this? By I mean, uh, maybe they'll identify, you know, with with certain things, but um, leaving them, you know, a lot of self-help books will leave you neurotic, and then you put them down. And you go, oh yeah, I'm really screwed up, but now how do I fix that? And I think that you have enough resources in there that people can get them help. So, can you talk about those takeaways? Originally, I had hoped to bring in people to write, you know, for this book that don't know anything about codependency and that, wow, if they're picking up the book for the first time, they can see what codependency is all about. And I hope that I do bring some people in that way. But I think that especially anyone who is in program who's looking for an example of how to do their inventory, because, you know, you can do your inventory so many ways. You can do relationship inventories. You can do time period inventories, defects of character inventories or relationship inventories or, you know, you can do an inventory on a specific person. Um, I think anybody who's getting ready to do their inventory will get a clear example of like, okay, this is a per this is a relationships inventory. She talks about her family of origin, her friendships, her romantic relationships, her work relationships, um, the relationships I have with people in bands and see exactly how to do that. And then, you know, I talk about my major defects of character. I mean, I have like 85 of them, so it would be a complete Bible if I did all of them. But, you know, the major ones are in there. So that's one thing. Um, and they, you know, a person can take away, I describe the steps and how I worked them and what they did for me, which is, 
you know, at the heart and soul of the 12-step CODA program. Um, and there's some tips, and there's some things you can walk away with, like I'm going to try and do these things and see if they work for me. They can take away, you know, I have a daily worship that I do. I meditate. I have prayer that I do, journaling, exercise, you know, working the steps. And, I, I mean, there's positive affirmations that you can take out of the book, photocopy, and take them around with you, my mantras, inner child work, and all of that. And I think, you know, as far as the worship, you know, I mean, it's it's too bad that, that God has become kind of a, a, a buzzword, a four-letter word in so many circles, and people really shy away from that because they think someone's going to tell them they're going to hell and, you know, they're going to fry and try and save them and bring into some church where they're falling on the altar and crying. And if people want that, that's great, but that's not my purpose. And you can make the worship anything you want, which is what's great about 12-step. Well, that was my next question because, you know, uh, 12-step is often associated with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christianity and God, especially God. So if somebody who is, uh, say, many people say they're spiritual spiritual, or but not religious or they have an issue where they're not sure <laughs> – uh, is this the, the program can still work for them? Is that correct? So that they don't lose hope. It can definitely work for them. I mean, they even have agnostic people, or a, I guess the atheist is the proper atheist word. Atheist would be yeah. I don't believe in God at all, right? Right. And I mean, there's atheists that do twelve step, and what they do is for the time being is they'll make their home group, their home coda group, or AA group, or OA, or whatever it is they'll make that their higher power. It's just admitting that there's something, a power greater than yourself. You don't have to call it God. You don't have to call it spirit. It doesn't have anything to do with Christianity or Buddhism or or Judaism or anything. Just right. that you're not the higher power. There's something out there that knows more than you. And, it, I mean, it's just amazing the pressure that it takes off you, you know. And I don't, I mean, I'm a Christian and I'm a Quaker, but I don't think it, comes across in the book as like a Bible something something. Again, I just I say what's true for me but a person doesn't have to be any of those things to have this work for them. You know, unless I think where people get goofed up and where I get goofed up as a person is if I think I'm the higher power I know everything. And man, when I start thinking that, boy do I goof stuff up, I gotta tell (laughs) you. You know, if I think I know everything and oh, I'm in control that's when things start you know, going to hell in a handbasket, as it were. That reminded me of the, you know, the saying that, you know, we know what we know. Yeah, like I know my name. Uh, I know I'm on the phone right now. Then we know what we we know what we don't know. You know, I'm no, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how to perform surgery on the brain. <laughs> I have no clue. Uh, but more importantly, we don't know what we don't know, which is probably a much bigger, bigger piece of the the whole knowledge pie. Correct. Yes. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. We don't know what we don't know. And, you know, that's just about discovering. So a person doesn't have to, you know, accept Christ as their personal Savior or start going to a mosque or whatever it is to, to do this. They can say whatever they think. It, it doesn't have to be a specific thing religiously at all. Let me ask you, because... Uh... Some of the uh, processes that you might acquire, tools and techniques uh, to help you through your life, uh, are they also 12, part of 12-step, or have you added some things that you, that helped you? 
Um, as far as my tools and processes, a lot of that came out of my work with my therapist, which I highly recommend. And I know that there's some 12-step people that have said that they call it the T word, like therapies. They don't, I mean, some 12-step people, I guess, don't, I don't know if they don't believe in therapy or they just don't advocate for it. But, I mean, I certainly do. And, um, you know, I first started my journaling, my daily journal, journaling and worship um, time through my therapist, you know, and, and just just the basics of self-care, having to do that and um, exercising every day, taking care of of number one and my mantras I got through my therapist. The positive affirmation work I definitely got through through 12-step. That's a, a big 12-step thing is positive affirmations, which have totally changed my life along with my gratitude list. And that was a total 12-step thing, which is amazing amazing thing. I mean, I could have, be having the worst day in the world or get up and just think, God, I've got this horrible day. And you go through your gratitude list, you know, and I realize I have an excellent life. And whatever it is, meeting, I remember one woman says, you know what, this is just a fly on the countertop of life. Don't worry <laughs> about it. It's a, Gratitude lists are great for that. Yeah, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And I like well, that. You, it, one of the one of the um, the things as I was going through your book, one of the things I, I realized because you kind you have I think that you have to delve into the darkness. Part of peeling the onion, as you call it, you know, the inventory, is really about touching the darkness. Because I know, first of all, when I, I did a similar thing years ago, I've never done a twelve step, but I did a similar inventory through another program. And I remember going through it and realizing that the things that really bothered me the most are thought, things I thought I had, I was over, number one. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two, it really put me in a dark place, the first one I did, because I was so focused on all the bad. And I truly believe that what you focus on expands. So after going and, you know, and I don't believe that, I believe that going to the dark place and, and really kind of identifying with what's going on, it's really about you can't fix what you don't acknowledge. So you got to acknowledge it first. But then that 12-step thing comes in where you start to, with the positive affirmations and, uh, you know, and talking about it and dealing with it in more of a positive light. Um, one of the things you wrote down which um, kind of hit me was when you were talking about um, other people's stuff has nothing to do with me. Other people's opinions about me belong to them. You know, when you start looking at your issues like that, you're focusing on the fix. You're focusing on the good. You're getting. You're focusing on gratitude, and that will now expand in your life. Is that true? Yes. And it, you know, as far as that other people's stuff has nothing to do with me. You know, I grew up in my child. One of my defects is that believing everybody else is right, and I'm always wrong. And after working this program, I'm realizing, no, it, that's not always true. It's, you know, my father wanted me to be that way. My mother wanted me to think that way. But in reality, those are their thoughts. I don't have to take that in. They're telling me whatever their opinion is, and I can either accept it or reject it. Now, a normal person may think, well, duh, that's no big deal. But when you're codependent, that's a big deal. That's saying, looking at something and saying, those are your thoughts. I don't have to agree with that. I'm going to let you own that. You know, I'm, I don't agree with you. And it, it, in getting working this program, I can get to the point now where I say, I don't agree, I think you're wrong. 
which is a big deal for someone who's conflict avoidant. And I'm very, you know, codependence can be really controlling and really confrontational and, like, aggressive and just always be stirring the pot, as it were, and some of them can be doing anything to avoid conflict, which is me, because conflict was such a negative thing at home that I avoided it. So I was always trying to avoid it, so I stuffed my feelings and I didn't say what I thought. And after a while, your true self starts getting ticked off and you're going to you're gonna say what you think. You touched on the, the fact that there's different types of codependency and you're the type, and I believe I'm the type, uh, we're more apt to be the peacemakers. Uh, but you touched on what, people that stir the pot and make trouble, and I've seen those people, I think others would identify with that. Could you talk to that? I think codependents can also be obsessed with controlling another person. And I think in a weird way, I mean, I, I tried to get my mother to stop drinking, so in a way I was the controlling person. But you're just willing to do anything to save that person, you're willing to do anything to change them. You're right, they're wrong. You're going to make them do it your way because you're the one that's right and you're not afraid of conflict because you're going to win because you know that whoever you're going after most of the time is probably passive. You know, and so you're not will you're not scared to step up there and say, "You know what? Well, I don't think so and you should be this way and you should be that and you know, why aren't you this way? Because you're not afraid of conflict because you don't use a lot of people that are like that, I think, are that's their way of, I don't want to say of being accepted, but they're not, they don't have the huge fear of abandonment and fear of rejection issues that a, a passive person wouldn't because that's the whole reason I was passive, passive is because I was afraid of being abandoned because that was my experience. I don't know. If so are you saying that there could be a codependent person that actually uh, feeds on another codependent, say like a mother who overfe- who allows her child to eat until they become four, five, six hundred pounds, and never saying no because they don't want the kid to go. Is that right, right, exactly. That's exactly right. They're totally yes, that's right. Or allowing a person to drink so that they stay in the misery and the and the situation doesn't change. Or right, or you know, going out and you know buying buying them cigarettes or buying them more ice cream or something. And the thing that my mother used to do that was really, you know, it's a, my therapist said it's amazing you're not schizophrenic is she would feed me ice cream and then call me fat and say, oh, have some more ice cream fats. And she knew that I wanted it, but then she criticized me for it. And it was just like, well, you know, what the hell? Do I eat it or not? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, that's definitely true. And that's, you know, they, they call that enabling, you know, is giving the person what they want. And, I mean, the bottom line is, in addiction, is you can't, the, uh, the person has to do something about it themselves. You can't right. save them. You can't get them to stop. You can't do anything about it. You can open the door. You can give them the literature, but you can't make them walk through it. Me as a codependent, I'm the only one that can fix my stuff. True, and and if you have an enabler out there, it gets really tough because it's bad enough for you to, you know, keep yourself away from stuff. When you have somebody else who's sabotaging your path at all points, it's it's really hard. Right, it's totally hard, and you you get to the point where you feel trapped. And I have I talk about that. I have had some friendships when I first moved back here to Vermont that I've had to sever because I was getting assertive enough just to say what I wanted and what I didn't want, and it was food issues. But 
I wasn't respected and I wasn't heard and I wasn't listened to. So you know what? It sounds drastic, but I'm not friends with those people anymore because they weren't they weren't being respectful of what I wanted and I didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go back. And it's that was a big step for me to say, you know what? I'm not going to go over there if that's how I'm going to be treated. It's an important step. You know my wife, and you know that when when we first got together, you were at my wedding. I don't yes. know if you know this story, but. When we first got together, I had a bunch of friends. I was also playing Hollywood clubs. In fact, we got to play. You and I sat down, I don't know if you remember, and uh, I wrote a song for our wedding, and you helped me record it. We played guitars together on the song uh, for the recording, for the uh, oh, video. Oh, gosh, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So you and I got to play together once. That's right. That's right. What was the name of the song? Oh, I never named it. Our wedding song. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, what I was getting to was, um, what was I getting to? Senior moment. When you guys first got married, I guess there was... Oh, no, okay. So when we first got married, uh, I remember my friends were a bunch of, uh, you know, bandmates and and crazy people from my uh, playing around, you know, messing around days. I won't go into details, but, uh, you know, I was uh, doing the whole Hollywood scene, whether it be drugs or, you know, stupid stuff. So, uh, but... When we got together, you know, she said, hey, I don't like your friends. You're going to have to get rid of your friends. And I, of course, said, are you kidding me? I'm the man. I, you know, I'm a person. I don't have to do anything. You know, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> and then I realized uh, that she, you know, she pretty much gave me the ultimatum. I, you know, I can't marry you if you're going to hang around these these losers. Well, I didn't see them as losers. They were my friends. Right. But I really loved her, so I decided that I was... It, I would do that, and I was very confused about the whole thing. But as I started to get new friends, and my new friends were these wonderfully supportive people, also nice and supportive people, also I realized that my old friends were misery love company type people who suck energy from you, people who are always trying to make you feel less than, and I realized, oh, my gosh, I actually looked up to these idiots who were dragging me down at all, at, at, at every turn. Um, and, I, and when you're in it, you don't see it. Yes. That's it's very good. true. And, you know, um, one of the things Melody Beatty talks about in her book is when she got sober, she had to get disassociate herself with anybody who drank or did drugs, which was any everybody she knew. And she had right. <laughs> that's exactly right. So she had to get a whole new set of friends if she was going to take care of herself. You know, that's I can totally relate to that. Well, it's, yeah. I don't know what it is inside us that makes us go toward, you know, the people that seem to, to want to hurt us the most. Um, because I never realized I have great friends now that are supportive and always always happy for me. You know, they're not jealous or vindictive. Or, and when you have that in your life, I, you know, it's almost weird because I never realized that those people existed. I just thought everybody was kind of a jerk. Right. That's the way it is. That's why I love your what you your title here. Everything is my fault because I just figured, hey, it must be my fault. I'm, you know, I must be less than, you know, I must not be smart enough or good enough or handsome enough or tall enough or whatever enough. And That's right. All smarter That's than right. me, they know what's going on because they're always telling me that they are. They're always telling me I'm a shit and that they're not. So, hey. No, that's true because you go, you you end up thinking that that they're always right, I'm always wrong, and I grew I grew up that way, feeling that way too. And if you hang around a certain um, 
group of people, then they get used to you being that way. And in a way, I, I didn't realize this, but I have a I have a friend who I mean, you choose your friends and you choose people who you feel comfortable with. And the odd thing is that even if it's something that's not good for you, if you're comfortable with it, then you gravitate towards that because that's that's what you grew up with. And it, there's a specific dynamic I have with a friend of mine who I've known for a really long time, and this person is everything that I'm not, assertive, self-confident, um, can be bossy, knows everything, smart, really quick-witted, and isn't afraid to fight for what they believe in and, you know, this is what I want and very strong and is can be very controlling. And I didn't realize till I'd done had some recent experiment, experiences with this with writing this book that um, this person I chose them because they're like my father and it, the whole relationship is was like that. The person is always right. I'm always wrong. I have to do what this person says. I became obsessed with pleasing this person. And when I finally worked it out, and I worked it out with my sponsor and with my therapist, it was like being hit on the head. It was so obvious. And when I would get mad at this person, you know, who am I really mad at? I'm mad at my dad. Oh, you mean I've got more to work out there? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that was a really um, scary thing. Let me, thing let me read on page 170 of your book what, uh, something that uh, when you said that reminded me of this particular thing that you wrote from your fearless moral inventory. Um and that is, Adam screams at me. You keep shoving expectations on me. I just keep trying to please you. You keep shoving expectations on me. I lose myself rather than leave you. And on the next page, it's also put out there, I'm inclined to diminish, change, or refute my moods. And I think a lot of us find when we're stuck in the situation you were just talking about, we diminish ourselves constantly for those type of people. Yes. And in this situation... I was in love with someone who wasn't in love with me, and I knew going in from the word go when Brad said to me, you know, I can't be involved with an ACOA. He's basically telling me he wants to be friends with benefits, and I always knew I wasn't that kind of person. My inner child was screaming, get out of here, and didn't listen. And um, so I spent a year and a half of my life trying to please this person, trying to do everything right. And fortunately, his son was a toddler at the time, and you just forgive said me all name, the people. What's that? You said his real name, did you not? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, every, all the all the names were changed in here. And I forgive me, anybody out there that's listening that has a toddler, because I know they're incredible creatures, but, you know, they can be a pain in the neck because they don't want to hear the word no. They're trying to figure out who they are. And, I mean, right. this kid was just screaming at me, and I was basically just... Um, trying to eat my feelings and not let him know how upset I was about it, and it just ended up backfiring. I incline, I diminished, changed, refute my moods. I was trying not to cry. And On that note, do you find it better now? Um, you find it easier now to set boundaries and to, um, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, stand in your power? I'm learning to do that, and I'm practicing on people that it's easier to do with or people that I don't have as much invested in, like there's a lady at the gym that sometimes says things or does things I don't agree with, and she's not like a friend of mine. I know who she is, but I practice being assertive, like I want this or I want to do that, and I'm learning 
to say those things. And even my friend, who's the perfectionist, who kind of represents my father, you know, now that I'm realizing that that's how I treat that relationship, I'm going to give her a break, take back what's mine, do the relationship, work on my relationship with my father, get her off the hook, and say what I think. And there's been a few times where, yes, I own my power, and I call, will say, you know, when I sent you that email, this is what I meant and this is what I wanted, but this isn't, I didn't want A, B, or C. And that's a big deal for me. Otherwise, I just would have cowered and shoved it under the carpet and said, oh, I'm sorry, and it's my fault, and I'm bad. And So it does get easier. It does get right. easier. Well, one of the things I find out is that, you know, we all, we're all told that once you stand in your power and set your boundaries, that people will respect them. <clears throat> Truth is, people don't like change. And if they see you as a certain type of person that they can kick around, when you decide to stand in your power, they fight you like a little kid trying to find his boundaries. They fight you tooth and nail to put you back where you're in your place, where you were. So it actually is, it can be tough, but you have to kind of stick to your guns, I found. I would, yes, I definitely agree with you. Because they're, they're not comfortable it. with you being that way. Right. And so for a while, it's like what, but I think and in some ways I'm thinking, well, the new Juliet that's emerging, emerging here. You know, we'll see who's really her friend and who isn't, because if the friendship is worth it to them, then they're going to feel like it's worth going through these changes. You know, one of the biggest things, most helpful things I've ever read is is something um, in this book called The Assertiveness Workbook by Randy, I, I don't know if you say Paterson or Patterson, but it's called The Assertiveness Workbook, and it's ideal for anybody who wants to get in there and work on being able to take care of yourself and speak up for yourself. And Right. He said that conflict is really just a word that just means the working out of an issue, and it doesn't mean that it's bad, you know. No. So it's anybody who's worth, you know, if a relationship is worth something to two people, then you work it out. Even at church, I'm founding, so I thought, you know, I have to go in there and be perfect and do everything. You can disagree with people. You can be different than people, and it's about working the relationship through, you know, and if... Now that I had that light on it, then yes, it is easier to go in and own my power. And if someone is really going to reject it, and I had a friend, you know, who I write about in the book who's no longer my friend, and that's too bad, you know, that I, I kind of stuck to my guns on an issue, and they they made the choice that's right for them. But, I mean, you learn who's going to really put the work into the friendship and who isn't. That's true. That's very true. And one of the important things you talk about when you say, uh, you talk about the book on being assertive. Um, one thing we talk about on, on these interviews all the time is the fact that people are taught, and I think you and I know this well, that uh, standing your ground is about aggression, and we're, that's why we tend not to be. We don't want. We don't like aggression. We don't like confrontation. Uh, so we avoid that, um, and we cower to people that are aggressive with us. So, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really not about aggression. It is about being assertive and setting your boundaries and sticking to them. And people who are aggressive with you, you need to see them in their true light, and that is a person who is not quite all there and is losing it, and that opinion can't matter to you because of the fact that they're they're in an, an angry and aggressive state. And, uh, right. And that you can be, you never have to get angry or aggressive with others. If, if, if that's true in both cases, I think that those are the people you start pulling off your friend list, right? Yes. Yes, especially because it, you know, 
especially an aggressive person, if they're rageful like that, like with my dad or whatever, it, I mean, you're not going to get anywhere with them, you know, and you can get just as far just by saying, look, this is where I'm at and this is how I want to do things. And I'm not saying it's comfortable. I mean, when I'm talking to my friend, you know, and saying these things that I think they may not like to hear, I'm my heart's racing. Sure. And after I get off the phone, I, mean, I still have that fear of abandonment thing, like they're going to leave now because I said something they don't agree with because that's what I grew up with. But it doesn't have to be the reality. I don't have to put my past on what's going on right now. And it's not going to get any, you know, for a while. I, I mean, I am stepping out of my comfort zone, so it's not going to be comfortable right away. But little by little, I can learn to say, no, that's not okay for me. Please don't do it, you know. Yeah. So just talking about the book, uh, I, you know, it's there's a lot of you in here. There's a lot of great information in here. There's a lot of help in here, and um, a lot of I love all the little parts of the, where you put in your um, um, fearless moral inventory and you write them out, and they're in, in italics, so they're easy to read, and they're very cool. Um, and since you're a lyricist, they're really, really cool. They have a lot of meaning and a lot of rhyme, and, and they're really good. Um, suggestions for people who are reading the book, um, what do you want to, you know, I mean, I think it would be compelling for somebody to read this book because I think a lot of us would, a lot of people are going to see the title, Everything is My Fault, and go, wow, uh, I get that. Um, what do you want them to take away from the book? You know, I always said that if I help one person with one thing when I put out this book, it'll been worth having done it. And I've already done that because a friend of mine said, you know, I relate to this, I relate to that. Um, but I guess if people just keep in mind when they're reading it, this is about me. This is my point of view. Um, I'm describing my character defects and my behaviors and my relationships from my it's from my point of view it's just like we were talking about you know a, a person sees their life through their computer screen and so it's already kind of biased because it's their screen i mean if you go over to somebody else's computer screen like if i went through yours i'm going to see a completely different because it's your screen it doesn't mean i'm right it doesn't mean i'm wrong i'm not sitting in judgment over anybody but myself but i think someone can take away this book and say look she described a life she described you know how she's dealing with some stuff and this is what worked for her and i can respect that and you know there's one thing in here i might try that's that's going to work for me and ultimately you know how cool would it be if someone read this book and said okay i'm going to find a meeting i'm going to find a code of meeting online I'm going to go. I'm going to go to an in-person meeting if you have one in your area. A lot of it's going online lately, I found. But right. and I'm going to ultimately, I'm going to start find a sponsor and really work this program and work with my higher power to get myself healthy. Wow, so. that's that's great. You know, because I know this was a, you know, it was work that you needed to do. And that's become a labor of love and, and, and a hope that uh, it'll help others, and I think that's incredible. By the way, I love the front cover. You've always been very photogenic, and it's what a really cool picture of you on there. Oh, thank you. You know, I have to add that um, a, a therapist friend of mine and friend of my family read it, and um, 
suggested that, you know, people keep a journal to write down what um, comes up for them when they're reading it. And I originally this was going to be a workbook, like everything you ever wanted to know about codependency in a workbook, too. And at one point it was just too long. I mean, it was like 900 pages, and then it was 600 pages. And, you know, you can't put out a Bible of this length and, you know, make it monetarily an advantage to people or, you know, expect people to look at it and say, oh, I'm, I'm staying away from that. You know what I mean? Right. But um, event, that's the next step is, is to get a workbook out there. But if people keep a journal, they may want to write down, you know, what they relate to, you know, and what feelings they're having when they read it and what well, it makes. This might be the first start of their peeling, peeling back that onion, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Wow, that's cool. Well, I think since you tell so much story, and that's the important thing, you're not just preaching a bunch of a bunch of technique and, and, and issue. You're telling your story, and uh, you know I think that people will relate to that, and they're going to see themselves in many of the stories that you tell, because you talk about it from relationship side, from the family side, from friend side, from coworker side. Um, so I, I got a feeling that a lot of people are going to see themselves in these things and, and, and gain a lot from this book. So. I'm very happy that you wrote it, very happy, and, and since I've known you a long time, um, you know, uh, me and my wife both love you to death, and uh, so we're very happy that, you know, very happy for you that you got this out. Um, okay. And after reading it, you know, knowing that you're, it's so great hearing that after all the struggles you went through, that you're coming through, you're seeing that light in the tunnel, and it isn't a train coming at you, <laughs> you know? Right, Exactly. Exactly, you know. So, well, thank you. Thank you for um, for talking about the book and for showing your interest, and thank you thank you for your support. No problem. I, you know, I, we talked a lot. I usually just ask questions, but I talk to you a lot on this one, mainly because I have the, a lot of those same issues. I, I do see myself in this book a lot of times, and I think that these are many of the things that you talk about are the issues that I try to bring to the forefront with people that need them. So, um, you know, this is a great book for that. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit. The authors that listen to this, there's many authors that listen to my stuff here. And uh, so I always bring up the question of new authors and best-selling authors, and, and that is you just wrote your first book. It's got to feel really wonderful once you finally get it all edited and the first time you get that that book in your hand, I mean, it's that, that day where you got to be just elated and happy as heck you got the book in your hand, um, only to realize that now i got to go market this thing. What, were, what was your um, experience like? Well, I just, I guess I was just always on to the next thing, and I got them, and I, I guess I haven't really let myself enjoy it enough of a, wow, I wrote this book, isn't it great? And, you know, it's it's, Marketing it is difficult, and I'm not really good on the web and the internet, and you know, dealing with those those kinds of issues. So it's been getting it up and running on Amazon and dealing with the seven million things you have to do for that has been really challenging for me. Plus, I do teach full time still too, so school's in full swing, and I'm having a really hard time getting out there and and promoting it. Um, but I mean, that's my next big thing is. You know, getting the issues resolved on Amazon, which I'm hoping I have, and um, my my website is up and running. People can buy the book and my CDs on my website. I've got a little store going, and um, 
Yeah, the marketing is a huge thing, and I thought about you because I thought you said, you know, something is once you write the book, 5% of your work is done, and now you got to do the other 95%. <laughs> so um, I'm more of a creative type that likes to just create and go back in my cave and create some more, and, you know, I've got to get more assertive with that. But I've got some, you know, 12-step conferences coming up that I'm going to see if if they're open to um, having me there and... Um, so, yeah, well, now that you have the book out, this opens you up to uh, speaking at the, these events, and that's a great way to um, to start selling your book. Um, interviews like this will, you know, help new authors and things like that. Um, but you, I mean, since you work full time, it's it it can get rough, uh, and uh, you hopefully you write it and people come. So you have to have so you've done, you're doing all the right stuff. You set up a website. What's the website name? Um, hiddenangel.net. Hidden mean, hidden angel? Yeah. Dot net. Mm-hmm. There, there you go. Okay. Hiddenangel.net. We're speaking to, uh, Juliet A. Wright. And I say Juliet A. Wright because, uh, since she's on Amazon, they put her down as Juliet A. Wright. And if you search her for her at Juliet Wright, it doesn't come up right away, does it? You know, I tried that and a friend of mine said that she just put Juliet Wright and the book did come up. So maybe it, Oh, maybe depends on whatever mood okay. Amazon's in, but yeah, you're yeah, sure yeah. to get it if you put Juliet A. Wright in there. Okay, so, so Juliet A. Period Wright, W. R. I. G. H. T. And yes. that's hiddenangel.net. That's hidden, like in hiding things. Hiddenangel.net to, to find, uh, get some more information and find the book there or on Amazon. And um, so wonderful speaking to you today. We don't well, talk thanks. enough, Juliet. Yes, I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And it was my pleasure. Everybody, this is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine speaking to Juliet A. Wright about her book, Everything is My Fault, One Woman's Journey Through Codependency. Everybody have a great day and a better tomorrow. Thank you for listening to our Made of Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2012, and all rights are reserved.